0: Why are the great whites disappearing from notorious parts of South Africa, where they have always dominated? What do great whites have to fear from orcas? And what's it like to be in a submarine, with 20 great white sharks surrounding you? At the age of 20, Alison Towner graduated from the University of Wales with an honours degree in marine biology, and went to work on a Greek island as a scuba diving instructor. She eventually became a marine biologist for the Dyer Island Conservation Trust in South Africa. Much of Alison's work is referenced in My Surfing Guide to Sharks, a must-read for anyone sharing the water with these unreal predators. However, her extensive knowledge on the hunting habits, personalities, and idiosyncrasies of the great white shark is only one of the reasons I wanted to speak with her. Her willingness to speak up against the threats these animals are facing, and her clear passion for the individuals that she works with, stands out to me the most. This particular podcast is a must-listen for anyone that surfs, swims or in general doubts the necessity and impact sharks have on the ecosystem and how delicate that ecosystem is to our own species' actions. All right. Hello. Hello in uh, South Africa from Australia.
1: Hello there, Australia from South Africa. So nice (laughs) to be on your podcast, Maddie, and finally getting a chance to catch up.
0: Finally. Um, I have so many questions for you, and I'm really, really excited to talk to you because I've been reading your work for so long now for so many different things. And there's actually another podcast episode where I talk about my surfing guide to sharks and a lot of the stuff that you research is referenced in there so um first question that I have for you which I think is an important question is I want to know how you got into sharks how you got into just being in love with great whites and how you decided to go down the path that you're currently on
1: oh that's a lovely question to answer and uh it often gets forgotten doesn't it when we we get into these roles especially in science you know what 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 started the journey um and as people might hear from my accent, I'm not native South African at all. I'm I hail from the UK, um, and even though I've been down here over 14 years, the accent's still as strong as ever. I guess that's just a Northern thing. So my my passion for sharks comes from my late father, um, and he, you know, he was an avid um, writer, fisherman. When I say fisherman, I mean he caught trout on a lake in Northern Lancashire and salmon and you know all sorts of freshwater species. He wasn't exactly your high seas fisherman. Um, but you know he had this real interest especially in uh, oceanic predators and he wrote a novel and you know this this whole passion that he had even though I only got five years of life with him really rubbed off on me he encouraged me to you know sort of follow that fascination with sharks so even when he passed on mum was like Ali, if you want to read that shark book for the 10th time to me, I'm going to sit and listen. I'm going to encourage this. So. Yeah, uh, certainly that's what, where it stems from, because, you know, ordinarily where I come from, there isn't much access to, you know, really nice coastlines. Um, so I, I actually did my undergrad degree in the University of North Wales at Bangor Uni. So just a straight wow. bachelor's degree, honours in marine bio. Um, And after the three-year course was done, I did a stint in the Red Sea off the Jordanian coastline as a dive instructor there, um, just absorbing the coral reefs and the beautiful dive environments there. And it was only 2007 that I then got the opportunity to move down to South Africa. Um, And I took up a guiding position on Marine Dynamics' shark cage diving boats. they're a white shark operator based in Hansby, two hours east of Cape Town. So that's how I got my foot in the door. Because, of course, it's a paid-for platform to go out and basically observe great whites, talk to people about them, get in the cage if you get a chance, observe them underwater. And what an amazing opportunity to gather information at the same time. So that's kind of how I got down here.
0: That is so cool. Do you remember the first time that you saw a great white shark underwater?
1: Absolutely. (laughs) It was the 19th of January, 2007. Um, And actually, funnily enough, yesterday I was going through some old dorsal fin IDs And uh, I call it the good old days because, I mean, January is considered low season for great whites here. Ordinarily, you see less of them in the coastal bays and generally inshore. And I think on that first trip, we had something like eight or nine great whites. And it was big, big, big female as well. Uh, I just, yeah, I remember looking at them and thinking, you know, this is one of the few animals that looks even more impressive in real life than it does on any photograph or piece of video footage. Of course, back then, it's before GoPros, drones and all the fancy stuff and the HD. It was like mm-hmm. Kodak cameras under the under the water and, you know, very basic pole cams. Um, but yeah, just absolutely in awe of them and, and just so thrilled to to see that they are just even more magnificent in real life.
0: Can relate. I got to dive with a couple great whites not too long ago, and I'd seen them in fleeting encounters underwater in the past, but I had truly forgotten everything and then, like, considering how much i've read about them and watched documentaries about them it's not until you're underwater with that animal and you're like i am bait (laughs) like there is nothing there is nothing i could do to not be bait in this situation like you know tiger sharks they're kind of dumb you can sometimes handle a tiger shark you know you have time with other sharks but there's something about the great white (laughs) that you're just in its presence and you're just completely humbled and you're like okay wow
1: yeah, they I demand respect that. in their presence, don't they? It's kind of like, I'm not worthy when you're with them. Eat underwater, <laughs> even, even more so, because you don't really have the fight or flight response. But I mean, even from a, a boat-based perspective, from in a cage or from the surface, you know, I do say a lot of times to people out here that come view them, don't get so fixated on that underwater experience alone, because often just from the boat, you know, you just see, especially when they come up and they do surface behaviors, like spy hopping or You know, just basically swimming past the cage in the boat and eyeing everybody up. You know, they're as inquisitive about us often as we are about them. It's just, it's electric. It's amazing. They're just such a, a wonderful species.
0: Oh, they're different. And the fact that they have warm bodies, so they have this system that can actually heat their bodies up so they're warmer than the surrounding waters. Do you think that that has anything to do with why they have that intelligence and curiosity that other sharks don't seem to have as much of?
1: Yeah, I mean, that warm, warm ability to what we call regional endotherms. they can partially warm their brain and eyes as well. So, of course, if they're hunting fast swimming prey in cold water environments, they definitely have that physiological edge. But certainly if you're, you know, your eyes and brain are a bit warmer, I I imagine absolutely it's an advantage from a a predatory uh, perspective. Um, It's always cool when we necropsy them as well, you know, just to see that thick band of red muscle running along the flanks is. It's so cool. It's almost as if they're just so empowered to be the, you know, the Usain bolts of the sea.
0: (laughs) It's a great way to explain them, absolutely. Um, I'm going to read a a quote from something of your research and your observations that I just love. Um, You said, My volunteers and I were tracking a large male in Shark Alley, an animal we known has been returning to the island for more than 12 years. For the first eight hours, he patrolled back and forth, seemingly uninterested in prey. Then, to our surprise, he rushed directly up to the rocks and grabbed a seal as it was half out of the water and devoured it. Another younger white shark we tracked west of the island tried predation on a seal, missed it, and then proceeded to chase its own tail. (laughs) And I love this because the difference between juvenile white sharks and their hunting habits and the more experienced older white sharks is significant. And this is something we need to know when we're talking about people getting attacked by sharks.
1: Yeah. No, you've hit the nail on the head there. And and often when these things are translated in science, it's kind of so to the point that you miss the context. So, you know, the paper that that came from was analysing over 500 hours of active tracking, acoustic tagging data on on these animals. And, you know, it breaks it down from a a statistical model point of view and and what we infer the behaviours to be. But when you actually can describe them as in these guys have their own personalities and, you know, ontogeny is, is, is the description of it scientifically, but as they age, they get much better at hunting. I mean, it's amazing to see that and, and absolutely a dire island because we have this system here that attracts such a, a vast range of sizes and sexes. You really see it play out from sort of following them around in their own world. Um, and that individual in Shark Alley, so he was called Zane, so Judge me, everyone. I probably am proper that's And that's, not, that's probably <laughs> not the scientific, uh, most scientific thing to do. But when you're out there and you're getting to know this animal, you know, you've got a pinger on it and you're following that around and you're spending upwards of 80 hours like stalking it in its environment. Then you want to name the fish. I mean, you're becoming really familiar with it. And so that particular individual we named him Zane. So he was named after one of our crew members, actually, on Marine Dynamics Vessel, um, a guy from South Africa who has fantastic eyes for spotting sharks, you know, in the distance. We called him Zane, but he actually, this animal, was tagged way back in 2003 with a satellite transmitter by Ramon Bonfil uh, and his team. So their paper went into nature. It was the, the record track of Nicole, the female from Dyer to Australia and back. So he was one of that sample set, and he still got a black mark on his dorsal fin from where the tag was placed. Um, and so we ha- we recognized him immediately. He's also missing the lower lobe of his caudal fin as well. So he's only got half a tail, if you will. But regardless, he is just so incredible at his, his hunting strategy. So he's got this channel environment, shark alley. Um, he's got a whole bunch of Cape Fur Seals that are lined up on this rock that are very much aware of his presence because he's hunting there midwinter. And remember, Cape Fur Seals are not silly. They do learn over time to evade shark predation, and that's why the white sharks don't hunt them so continuously throughout the year but he he'd worked it out so yeah exactly he was circling the whole day in shark sharp alley he was lining up his target and then eventually after all that effort he got his kill but we were absolutely blown away to see that he didn't do it st- strategically like we expected him to you know your classic ambush and breach he literally used the swell and timed it perfectly so he could get at half about the water and grab the seal off the edge of the rock and I actually have the end photos of the predation from, from some volunteers that were on the boat. So you can see sort of his fin sticking out and the blood in the water, but sheer disbelief. Um, and That's amazing. Amazing. And we just naturally expected then he would go and rest a bit. And I remember still calling Oliver Jewell, who is a scientist that collaborated with me on, on all of that tracking data. In fact, he's now based in Western Australia at Murdoch University, working on cat tag data with white sharks. Uh, I remember calling him and saying, Ollie, you know, you're going to have to take over this shift this evening, um, you know, with the next group of volunteers. Dead easy. The shark's just in Shark Alley. You'll find him. You know, he's going to hes hardly moved today. And Ollie got out at sunset and he literally was taken on a wild goose chase all around the back of the island because the shark then decided to take off and go and probably hunt for another prey species or explore what was available. So super unpredictable at the same time. Um, but yeah, then you say about the other female shark, which was a juvenile, and completely i mean she she missed her prey, um, so the seal kind of went one way, she went the other, and um, through missing it, she ended up chasing her own tail, which it's poppy behavior you know it's, it's her learning that don't do that next time time it better um, so, yeah, yeah,
0: so that 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 ability of theirs to to kind of you know sharks are always we always hear about them being born with their instincts and they immediately know what to do but the great whites seem to change and learn and perfect and this makes a lot of sense when we talk about attacks too because a majority of attacks are actually from smaller white sharks not the larger ones so it could very much so be a case of these sharks learning like in australia for example when you're learning to drive you got to put special license plates on your car so everybody knows that you're a noob and it's almost like the same thing with the with the sharks. Um,
1: Imagine if they wore L plates, like. <laughs> oh, so, <laughs> sorry, I'm not was... quite experienced round here, guys. You need to give me a few shots at you first. Before. But that's so yeah. true. Yeah, that's so true. And as humans, we 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 accept that with our own species, but you know, in the wild, we we kind of want to brand, especially sharks. I find they always get branded as this kind of one size eating machine that's born being able to kill like almost anything and. The fact is, young great whites eat fish for a long time until they can actually specialize on seals. And when you see that transition of, of them actually getting it right, it's, it's it's so incredible. But yeah.
0: And and just the fact that they chase their own tail is the cutest dang thing I've ever heard.
1: <laughs> yeah, they've definitely all got their own personalities, for sure. And I'm sure you've seen that through diving with them, Maddie. I mean, it, you know, you'll know, you have that one that'll come up to you and it's just that much, much more bold and inquisitive than maybe the one that hangs off in the distance and, and can't quite build up the confidence to come in and have a look, or is simply just not interested in you.
0: Well, I I was under the impression that they were, um, I'm going to get this word wrong, crepuscle. What's that word? Oh um, yeah, the whole not, sun,
1: sunrise, sunset.
0: <laughs> yeah. So essentially like not nocturnal, not diurnal, but Capuscular and hunt at these times and then I had a night a cage night dive with a white shark which just completely changed my perception of these animals (laughs) and then I'm like okay don't give it a name they'll just hunt whenever they want they just do what they want like let's stop trying to label them they just do what they want when they want
1: oh indeed and there's so much we don't know about their nighttime or their nocturnal hunting patterns and I guess it's just so limiting because, of, you know, the darkness really kind of limits what you can collect in terms of information. But that must have been something. I've never actually dived with them nighttime hours. I've seen them from a boat, um, but certainly not been down underwater. and that must have been spectacular.
0: Well, I've never been so happy to be inside a cage my entire life, to be honest. <laughs> that was a very spectacular dive. Um, so <laughs> I, I've Googled kind of the area where you work and were based for a long time and and I found a really interesting quote and it said only a few years ago scientists estimated there were between 300 to 500 great white sharks in South Africa's false bay now they have completely disappeared is it true that the great whites have disappeared from this area
1: yes the topic of the hour love this topic <laughs> um so i think that study was referring actually to hands by if i remember rightly the false bait estimate was a little higher than that um it was put out by adrian hewitt a few years ago um so the thing is with photo id studies you know it all depends on the, the sampling period and how long the research has been in the area and also how you know obviously most all white sharks are migratory but taking into account that the, sh- the sharks migrate that they move and that you're looking at a snapshot of the population as opposed to a whole You know, count of the of the stock. So that's often why, if you if you Google and you have a look at all the papers on white sharks and numbers worldwide, you'll see such varying numbers, you know, per region and per continent. Um, But back to where we are. So yeah, we're based in Hansby, two hours east of Cape Town, as I said. And here we have seen definitely since 2017 um, a drop in numbers of great whites. So I think the paper that you read may have been around about 2013, 2014. So prior to 2017, there certainly was no evidence of dropping numbers that we could pick up on. We reported on, you know, a, you know, what looked like quite a healthy number of white sharks passing through this area. Uh, we certainly addressed that there are issues that great whites fa- uh, face in South Africa, and particularly the shark nets off the east coast of Durban. Um, but we said, you know, this is this is a number that we're confident with because we've been out sampling for five years straight. So it's not as if we've had now, this is the thing about this area. The accessibility is incredible to these predators. So it's not as if we we get closed off for four months of the year. Like many white shark aggregation sites, we are here on site year round on the sea almost every day. So you get a really good gauge for what's happening in an area if you if you have that accessibility. So, yeah, you're right. So basically what happened was 2017 numbers drastically declined here. I'm going to use the word drastic, even though it's uh, quite quite an impactful word. And likewise, off Cape Town's False Bay, a similar trend occurred, but a little earlier, so around 2015. So what we're looking at here is two coastal regions where the numbers have just gone from pretty stable or, or regular sightings things to very, very little and very quickly. And so I guess the question is, what's happened, right? Why do we think this has occurred? And of course, with this, there's been a whole bunch of um, the theories. And I guess that's, that's fine. That's exactly what should happen is people speculate. And then with science, you need to back up and prove with evidence is this causative or not. And going from the science perspective and looking at what data there is, one thing is certain. There was a big change, not just with shark numbers here in Hansby, but also with the top predators that we are seeing in the area. And this is also completely in time with the appearance of killer whales. And not just killer whales or orcas that are passing through chasing common dolphin, or you know how killer whales actually have vast amounts of prey that they can consume. an ecotype to do that, uh, we were seeing sh- killer whales that are specifically um, very well-efficient at hunting sharks. So that's what changed in 2017 in Hansby and also in False Bay, a similar thing occurred. Uh, and you mentioned seven gill sharks um, to me before we started recording. So this pair of killer whales that we started seeing in Hansba also started taking uh, seven gill sharks in the False Bay area and caused them to uh, decline drastically in number. So that's what we can say the evidence uh, leads to. Of course, we can't discount the fact that fisheries, I mean, look, Seaspiracy just came out now. Everybody, I think, has a good understanding of the impact of industrial fisheries now worldwide. If you've seen that documentary, whether whether we agree with it or we don't, you know, the topic is real and... South Africa does have a lot of fisheries off its coastline, but the evidence in the timeline of the disappearance here in hands by doesn't correlate with any fisheries data that we've analysed and seen. It correlates with the killer whale presence.
0: Okay, well, that's pretty amazing. So the fact that sharks are scared of killer whales um, is pretty cool because I'm also terrified of killer whales. So that's another thing that me and sharks have in common. I guess a lot of people aren't aware that orcas will actively hunt great whites, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I I watched Free Willy. I'm sure you did as a kid and enamored by how beautiful this large dolphin species is and charismatic and intelligent. And then I saw them single-handedly ripping livers out of large great white sharks. And I thought, wow, Mm -hmm. you you guys have some sophisticated and quite evil hunting strategies. But I mean, at the end of the day, they just, you can't help but admire their, you know, their um, efficiency and just. Of course, they work together, so it's it's like it's it's a strategized plan, um, and very few animals can can escape that. I mean, they're they're known as the wolves of the ocean because when they enter areas and they learn and refine their hunting strategy on a, a specific prey species, I mean, that prey species will readily bolt out of the area because they don't stand a chance. Uh, whether Unreal. it be yeah whether it be penguins on ice floats in you know in Arctic or Antarctic waters, and you know it's it, it's it's everywhere it's, it's you know seals in South America or um herring, you know there's so many different species that they eco type the type and feed on, but the strategies they use and the the teamwork involved is is something, so yeah, I am with you on there on fearing them more than sharks in some respects because at least sharks just kind of get it done quickly and don't waste much but
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah um and then. Of course it it as you said it doesn't correlate, but the idea of fisheries potentially having an impact is something that I never thought about because you always think shark fisheries can affect shark populations, but what we don't realise is that protecting something like the Great White without protecting its prey could also be an issue, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. And you know, I'm definitely not against the idea that prey species removal could cause movement away. But what you would see is much more gradual declines. And what we saw here in Hansby was very sharp declines very quickly. In fact, when we ran the ch- change point analyses on the long-term data, there was one specific date that jumped out uh, when everything changed, right? And that was the date that the killer whales uh, actually predated for the first time here in, in Hansby that we know of. Um, so, So, yeah, fisheries, prey species removal, it is often overlooked. And, you know, to lump all fisheries into one category we've got such differing methods and we've got, you know, such differing, I guess, amounts that are taken by various sectors. So here in South Africa, we do have demersal longliners, which are known to take small species of sharks. We know that small species of sharks are prey for great whites, but we also have pelagic longliners. You know, there was a nature paper that came out a couple of years ago showing 64% overlap with white sharks and these longliners in the offshore. Remember, your pelagic longliners have tougher gear, so they're focusing on your tuna, your swordfish, Um, so they'd probably be able, I guess, within their scope to catch white sharks, whereas the demersal longliners would struggle a little bit, I think, more, not that they wouldn't be able to catch them. Um, So we just need to be mindful of what what we classify as the fishery doing all the damage when we've got so many of them. The shark nets take about 30 white sharks a year in South Africa. I mean, I don't know about the Queensland ones you guys have, but 30 white sharks a year, we addressed that in the population estimates years ago. I mean... That is that is a quantified source of mortality because we know the gears targeted at large sharks specifically, whether it be a drumline or a net. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is we need to be mindful of all the evidence and um, particularly the evidence that we can see. I mean, all of those fisheries have been at play for a long time here. Um, and the one thing that, that changed within the time period that the white sharks left was, was the fact that killer whales were coming through. But, yeah, can it be removal of prey? Absolutely. It just It's one of those that quantification of mortality is key then to to prove that. And electronic observers on boats uh, is becoming a thing now. Uh, the longliners in South Africa now have electronic observers on board. So there's none of this sort of biased of data or observers being threatened because I know that is an issue. So I think within the next few years now, we're going to see some some real clarity on that issue. Um,
0: because we get this, like in Australia, it's quite common to hear people say, "Great whites are going to turn around and attack humans because we've fished all their prey." And it's different everywhere in the world, and that could have some validity in some places, perhaps. But it could also be if you take out their prey, you push them elsewhere, and that could be, you know, a situation where, like, say, there was a shark fishery in Australia taking out gummy sharks, which we know that some great whites love to eat. Yeah. Um the great whites could then go somewhere where people are surfing because their original prey source has been overfished. Like, are as, as opposed to worrying about the population boom, the issue could actually lie in removing the prey of these animals.
1: Uh, well, absolutely. I mean, your juvenile white sharks, as we've uh, mentioned previously, they do forage a lot for elasmobranch prey species, in fact, primarily. But remember, if we talk about prey, we've got also a surplus, actually, of Cape seals in some of the areas that are being touted to be abandoned because of prey, um, lacking of prey. So I guess as well, white sharks are super cosmopolitan predators, so they can adapt and they can feed on other species. But the nutshell, I guess in a nutshell, if you've got fisheries taking too much, which we know is a thing, it does need to be properly managed. And, you know, quantification of mortality is the most important data there. So counting and actually having numbers to back up how much prey has been taken um, is, is really, really important. And certainly there are declines in those species here in South Africa, and, and it need, we need to be you know, inclusive of all this information when it comes to looking at the situation from a scientific angle.
0: Absolutely. Um, so I'm sure you would have seen not too long ago, I got to film some amazing great white shark action here on a local beach in Australia when a dead whale washed up.
1: I did. Are we talking about the absolutely fabulous drone footage that one can never get enough of watching in slow motion?
0: Yes, we are. The one that I somehow managed to work into every podcast, if no one brings it up. Um,
1: (laughs) (laughs) I was totally going to bring it up. It's amazing.
0: (laughs) So one thing that I noticed when I kind of put that out in the public was people in sheer shock at how shallow Great White's can patrol travel swim I mean that was a big white shark in a couple meters of water less I mean there would have been points where it was like at least only a meter so they do come quite shallow
1: yeah they absolutely do and I think I have to give this to you Maddie seriously out of all the drone footage that I see out there on white sharks that has to be (laughs) the most crisp (laughs) perfect example of just how shallow they go because I mean those guys were literally on the beach, right? I mean, I think you could have been ankle deep almost in the water there to uh, to walk up to them. So that was that was a really really powerful footage as well. Um, and again, as you say, it just shows that they can absolutely navigate in these really shallow waters, especially if there's an in- incentive such as a whale carcass leaching out oils and 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 drawing their interest. Um, and as much as they're built in these sort of robust torpedo shaped you know, body designs, they're super efficient at being able to navigate in that in that shallow water environment. And I think it's just wonderful that you showcase that. Drones, in fact, I'm learning so much from drone footage that I would never have had access to that kind of data from a boat or from tracking data. Uh, There's a guy in California, I don't know if you follow, the Malibu artist, he's there in San Diego, but I mean, he often sends me footage of his drone there in uh, in the inshore environments and reefs. And I just can't believe what he records and what behaviors those sharks are exhibiting that I, I honestly never knew they did. So, yeah, drones are are a thing for sure.
0: Yeah, they're um, becoming a huge part of research and they're, they're a lot of fun. I'm honestly still just learning how to use mine, but I do love a good shark stalk. And, <laughs> like, y- y- you would have loved that day because... It was just like this huge dead whale and, and it was a few people on the beach like quite distraught about the fact that the whale was dead and then there's just me in the corner just like excited as all hell because I'm seeing <laughs> great wine. It's just like being totally inappropriate in that situation and um, <laughs> typical me. Uh, and it was it was quite interesting because as I was leaving the beach to go back to my car, there was people going surfing and I even stopped to show them my footage and I was like, guys, you're downstream from this. Just be yeah. aware that there is a, a whale and they and they went surfing anyway. Yeah. And it was just like
1: <laughs> this yeah. moment
0: where I was like, Yeah, Australia.
1: Yeah, South Africans are exactly the same, Maddie. I mean, it's yeah, it's almost as if they just, you know, when the shark spotters um put the siren up quite a lot of time, obviously in Cape Town they've got this fantastic observer system where, you know, City of Cape Town actually a whole network of people on on clifftops and mountaintops and strategic an conditions.
0: amazing system
1: yeah it's I really
0: great
1: it. i know and it's so doable if you've got the right topography in an area or you can build towers i mean it's just a wonderful method um but as you say like it'll be often that a shark will be sighted in an area and the sirens will go and the people will get out and then temporarily you know the surfers that you can tell are real hardcore surfers and have been around forever. Very quickly, they'll get back in the water as soon as as, it, uh, as they can. I guess that whole perception of, of you know you're you're taking a risk when you go into the water. Obviously, don't push it. I mean, my opinion is if you know there's a shark around, you don't need to go and put yourself at risk. Um, but it's quite mind boggling that the guys you described went into the water with a whale carcass because that is that is now a whole different level of motivated sharks in an area. Um, yeah, but yeah. It was
0: it was crazy, and it was. I don't know it was I can fully understand the idea of just going surfing no matter what I mean I surf almost every day here I'm terrible at it um but it's still like my favorite thing in the world it's got me through this year of COVID lockdown so yeah I can fully understand why it's worth the risk but there are definitely times where it's just not a good idea and what Most people don't realize, and I I love the surfers who are like, you know, I'll risk my life because it's my sport and it's only like if I die surfing, i die happy. But it's not you that suffers. It's the paramedics that are responding to you that are traumatized. It's the other people on the beach. It's the sharks because the sharks at the end of the day are the ones that are going to be targeted for your fatality. So it's now a community issue as much as it is an individual issue. So it was quite interesting. Um,
1: Absolutely. No, you're 100% right there. and. It's all well and good until something goes wrong. And as you say, there, particularly in Australia, it's the shark that loses out, and nobody wants that.
0: Yeah. Um, have you noticed a difference in male and female behaviors amongst great whites?
1: Oh, definitely. <laughs> yeah. The females, I mean, look, my favorite, if people ask me what, out of all the sharks you've tracked or that you've seen, what what age, what size is, 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 is your favourite? And I always say this, I mean, gosh, I'm not a feminist or anything, but I, the large females have something about them. So particularly upwards of four, four and a half metres in length, they come into this coastal bay in, in highest numbers actually around about spring. Uh, so that would be September, October here. And the behaviour that we see from them is just totally different to, to other size uh, demographics. So they often have this sort of real air of self-importance around them <laughs> you know so especially in a chummed environment you know if a cage diving boat or a research boat as they as they sort of come up to the boat and they start to circle in fact very quickly they lose interest because it's kind of like oh this this situation again now i'm not going to chase that bait line for no reward okay i'll just uh you know i'll just carry on circling out of interest anyway and in in doing that they'll actually keep away other sizes of sharks you know other juveniles because just because they're so large-bodied and so, I guess, dominant in their presence. Uh, so I do love the big females. Um, but also, we've, you know, we've got some ace big males around here as well. Just a few weeks ago, we were out tagging. Um, we had a big, big great white around. We call him Mini Nemo because he's missing his like, <laughs> oral fin. <thing. laughs> Bless him. Uh, we've logged him here for years. I mean, he comes back usually once, twice a year. Um, and we've seen him get really, really bulky. So we first logged him at about two, two and a half meters. And what he did, the shark, he came around and we got the acoustic tag externally placed at his dorsal. All's good. Now, we were also trying to tag bronze whaler sharks at the time. And to do that, we had to do internal surgeries. Uh, We had a vet on board. This was for Toby Rogers, uh, PhD, as a colleague. Um, And long story short, we needed this shark to leave now, basically. So the bronzies would come in. Um, So in an attempt to do that, we pulled in the bait line. We sat there for best part of an hour for him to leave. We were confident he'd gone off. And as we threw the bait in, we could see a bronzy down the chum line just coming up. So vet was ready. Everybody's on cue to get this bronzy tag. Throw the bait line in. As soon as it splashed the water, Mini Nemo came flying up from the depths, launched on this bait line, took it as if he completely outsmarted us. You know, he, he was just waiting for that splash and then he was ready to go. So, yeah, I mean, as much as I say, big females are, are a firm favorite through that dominance behavior. Just, yeah, these characters that come back year after year and they get super specialised at what they do. They, they outsmart us. They actually do. So it's, I, I'm always in awe of that.
0: So cool. You would have seen so many amazing things. Um, and one thing I'm really curious about is how climate change has been impacting Great Whites, in particular their distribution. And I know that there's very little hard evidence on this at the moment, but do you think this is going to be something that's really going to play into our futures?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I did my master's degree uh, through University of Cape Town on, on that, well, kind of on that topic. I looked at environmental influences in this bay. Uh, and even back then, I mean, we we said with changing currents and ocean patterns due to climate change, we could expect to see shifts in this predator. And as soon as you see shifts that bring this stock of white sharks, like, say, closer to humans or cities or you know water user communities then ultimately there's always the risk of, of, of problems there and i think it's a theme that it's actually really hard to tease apart environmental influences and prey species because they're also interconnected but certainly if you look at oz and you look at california and some really cool papers that are coming out now again recently on white sharks moving and doing different things with, with d- different water um, parameters monterey bay they just had a whole Group of great white sharks that kind of rocked up there and hung out for a whole series of months, and they think it was in sync with a, an abnormal pocket of warm water that entered the area. um yeah. So, so absolutely, climate change will ultimately, if it doesn't influence directly white sharks, it will certainly influence their prey species and then therefore where they go. So, I think it's it's a huge thing to consider.
0: It's very interesting. It's also very daunting because, I mean, that I've tried my best to make guides for people based on what we know about great white behavior because we tend to know a fair bit about sharks or enough for people to make educated decisions but it seems yeah. that that's all changing now and it's it's funny because the people are immediately like shark populations have boom they've been protected too long but it's so much more complicated than that and it's just quite fascinating and intimidating to think that you might know what you're doing or what you're talking about when you enter the water, but at the end of the day, the oceans change so fast, we may just have to learn all over again.
1: Absolutely. I mean, you're completely right. And you get so many uh, examples of sort of decadal shifts or trends in in different species, so like sort of peaks and troughs of numbers. Here in South Africa, even though we've got these disappearances, let's say in some Western Cape Bays, you just go further down the coast east to Mossel Bay and you know you can count decent amounts of white sharks in by a seal colony there most times throughout the year. Um, so I think often, as you say, it's just it's pieces of information that get taken and often get polarized or taken out of context. And as you say, the ocean's so dynamic; these predators move. Uh, many things influence their movement, and we should really be inclusive of all the information and evidence before we make these decisions. To Okay, it's totally safe to go swim here now or, you know, make rash decisions. It's uh it's certainly very important. And yeah, that's I guess one of the things about the ocean. It's inherently dynamic.
0: It's one of the best things about it. <laughs> and one of the scariest. Yeah. Um I wanna ask about great white pups because they're so damn cute. And they're so interesting and we know so little about them. Do we know where they're born, and anything extensive about baby great white
1: sharks. Oh, I love that you asked that question. I'm actually going to WhatsApp you a photo now of this tiny little shark oh. <laughs> <laughs> that I found yesterday. Um, so he had a nibble on the foam on the outside of a cage diving trip, I think back in 2007. Where is this now? Okay, it's on your way. Uh, but t- look at his tiny little ampullae and his really pointy snout and you know, absolutely. White shark pups actually look a lot like sort of almost like mako-like, don't they? They've got these really pointy snouts, these googly eyes. They're not your typical um, sort of, you know, I guess the larger white sharks usually make the cut when it comes to cinematography or shark weed. But these you, little guys... You know guys, what they
0: are? They're just a little bit awkward. <laughs> and that's why I love them. Like, they're just... Their, their fins look adult size, but they don't, they, they need to grow into their stuff. They're like, yes. I don't know, it's their puberty and it's just adorable. And this photo is so cute.
1: <laughs> Isn't it just hilarious? But yeah, I mean, we obviously, we get to see white shark pups here in this, this region, because as I say, it's an open coastal bay and it's, it's home to, well, temporary home to all sorts of different size demographics of, of great whites. In fact, pretty much the whole range. Um, And what we we think happens here in South Africa is that the pups are dropped somewhere south of Madagascar, somewhere Indian Ocean, Mozambique Channel, particularly those regions seem to be from the data we've collected from satellite telemetry, uh, regions that these large, large females tend to gravitate towards. So when I say large, I mean four and a half meters in length. And it's also the areas that historical fisheries data have shown the only pregnant specimens caught on record. So the theory is they drop the pups there somewhere, we think, and then the pups come inshore and the sort of next sort of coastal area east from there would be um, sort of eastern Cape South Africa. So we've got Algoa Bay, the trans sky, um, and it tends to be in Algoa Bay, Port Elizabeth, which has now changed its name. And I can't pronounce it for the life of me, but it begins with a Q. It's a very African pronunciation. Um, Port Elizabeth, it's known to most people. So that bay is um, mostly um, very young of the year or juvenile great whites being seen, uh, particularly in summer months. And Dr. Matt Dickin actually did a whole project there where he internally tagged a bunch of white sharks uh, and many of the anim- animals that you would see or anglers would re- report seeing even still had like the little umbilical umbilical scar. Um, scar. So that's indicative of, of course that they are very, very young, uh, sort of 1.5 to 1.8 meters in length. So, yeah, that's the theory. And then, of course, when a baby great wide or a pup um, begins its life, it has to, A, find food to eat, and, of course, fish and skates and rays and things like that are very important prey species to it. So a big coastal bay like Algoa would be you know, nice water temperatures, relatively protected from large, large predators, um, and they can get on and go about their juvenile life and you know get the strength to progress onwards and upwards. Um so that's the theory but again it's all very like pieces of evidence that we we kind of put together and we hypothesize but until we physically see white sharks giving birth here yeah, or anywhere in the world we can't fully confirm it but that's the that's the thought process looking at what data is available
0: That's amazing and just given the experience of being around a female great white I couldn't imagine being around a pissed off hungry pregnant one that <laughs> Which actually, actually, it's the opposite is true. They're actually kind of docile. Um, They have that suppressed appetite so they don't turn around and eat their own young, right?
1: Can you imagine that, having feeding inhibition, like hormones to stop you um, cannibalizing on your pup as it's born? It's it's another reason I think I love these badass female, like adult white sharks, (laughs) because that's, that's really, really amazing. Actually, one of the largest victims of the orca predation here, she was just under five meters. Uh, we'd named her Khaleesi from Game of Thrones because we thought she should have had like dragons with her. She was so dominant. Anyway, one of one of the victims of the orca predations, unfortunately. But when we examined her, I still remember my supervisor, Dr. Malcolm Smale, who is a powerhouse of you know scientific information when it comes to sharks here in, in Southern Africa. He, uh, he examined her and he turned to us and he said, you know, she's she's not even reproductively mature yet. And she was all, she was five meters, 4.9 something. So. I mean she weighed 1.1 tons minus her liver and she still wasn't mature at that size so again I guess it gives that urgency to how important it is to protect all phases of their life because they these these girls have to be plumbing big to be able to give birth
0: oh that's amazing um so my final question for you is the best question I want to know about your best most favouritest great white shark encounter
1: Oh this is always the, the the favorite question and it's a difficult one because there's been amazing amazing um, opportunities out there but I think it has to be the time in 2008 that I went in a submarine with Andre Hartman himself. So those people that don't know who Andre is first of all, you can't call yourself a sharp person if you don't know who Andre Hartman is but he <laughs> um, he was a spearfishing um, champion here in South Africa for decades and when I got down here he was... He was sort of still going to sea and uh he was testing this scientific exhibition submarine um for I think it was shark project in Germany and it was in collaboration with Dr. Ryan Johnson who's Mussel Bay based. Yeah and so they had this it was like almost like an abalone cage with pontoons around it. Uh, they had it out on the water by Dyer Island. I'd gone to sea with uh one of the cage diving trips, Marine Dynamics. We'd had upwards of 20 great whites at the boat on that trip. And as the trip finished off, I got a phone call to go and join Andre, uh, which, I mean, he was my hero growing up as a kid. I watched all of his uh, his footage. And so, of course, I just seized the opportunity. I, I literally almost jumped from one boat to the other. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> before I knew it, I was on the the seabed of Dyer Island with Andre Hartman breathing off our little scuba tanks there. And uh, as we settled on the on the seabed, we were around 20 meters, I think. And the viz also was around 20 meters. It was one of those rare, crisp, uh, beautiful underwater viz days at Dyer, which are quite rare. Uh, and we counted upwards of 20 great whites around us. It would just be like, you know, imagine you-
0: 20 great
1: white sharks. Yeah, I mean, I'm pinching myself as I say it because it's, it's almost unbelievable. But yeah, I mean, we lost count. It was it was unbelievable. So you'd see like the shadow in the distance. You, you know how that goes. And then it gets bigger and, it, you know, and then it starts. There's something about when they swim up to you from distance, you know, and you can actually see them coming in, uh, you know, sort of that side to side motion and then the eye contact. And, you know, it was just for me, it was just such a visually stunning experience. I didn't feel scared at all because, you know, I'm with Andre, probably also <laughs> because I was only about 21 years old. I had less fear, and less you know, <laughs> bit of inhibition. Um, and yeah, we just sat there, and and he actually even opened the lid of of this sub, so like it's a, a little cage basically. So he opened it up. So effectively, I don't think we were really free diving because we were sat stationary observing. But these sharks really responded to the, the sub, and you know they would come right up over us, these gleaming white bellies, and I think almost they were interested in the electrical field of the you know the metallic field of the cage. Um, and we just proceeded to spend an hour under there with them, just observing them. Um, so it basically felt like an underwater bruv just sat there in their environment and, and they accepted us. You know, they were inquisitive, but it's hard to top that, Maddie. It's really hard to top that. So I think that that's the number one. Um, that
0: is insane. I can't even imagine that, but the Jurassic Park theme music just started playing in the back of my head as you <laughs> described it, because that's what it sounds like.
1: Oh, anything John Williams would go in that scenario, definitely. Oh,
0: he should have been in the sub just making music to go with the
1: situation. <laughs> with his orchestra. <laughs> yes.
0: That is unreal. No wonder you are such an amazing advocate for the animals. And I cannot thank you enough for not only joining my podcast today but for writing all your research papers that I've been able to reference over the years. And to everybody listening, I'll put some uh, little notes in the podcast notes so that you can follow her work into the future. And good luck with, with what you
1: work on next. Oh, thank you so much, Maddie. I really appreciate it. And, you know, as far as, you know, your, your stance in our field is, you do so much. You know, you're one of those activists that always acknowledges the science and includes it. And I love the fact you read the papers. I really do. I know they're often boring and full of jargon, but you've always been you know really inclusive of that. And I think it's fantastic. So thank you for who you are and what you do for sharks, which is a hell of a lot and also inspiring so many you know people out there to get involved with with shark conservation honor and a privilege to have been on your podcast and um yeah let's keep in touch because you have to get down here to south africa and visit at some point i know it's not been been part of your agenda as of yet but it, it definitely needs to be
0: it's a dream and i absolutely will and thank you so so much
1: thank you maddie you take care